Welcome to episode 2 of the Historias podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. In this episode, we'll discuss the politics, literature, and propaganda of the Castilian Civil War of 1366 to 1369 in the context of 14th century Europe. To do this, I'm joined here in Jerusalem by Breton Rodriguez, a lecturer in humanities at the University of Nevada, Reno. Breton, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start out by asking you a bit about the dynastic causes that kind of immediately led up to this conflict because I know that the that this can always get a little bit complicated when we're talking about these medieval dynasties. So I think for us to understand the situation, I think we need to kind of start by kind of understanding a little bit of some of the main characters, right? And I think the most important one for, for our understanding of this conflict really is Pedro I. So just to kind of set the context a little bit, Pedro's the only legitimate son of Alfonso XI. Um, Alfonso XI is one of the most successful, most powerful Christian kings of the 14th century. He takes the throne when he's a young child. Um, he has a very rocky kind of early, early stages to his, to his reign, and then he kind of comes into his own. Unfortunately, he dies young. He, he dies as a young man. He's kind of struck down by the Black Plague, actually, uh, while on campaign. So, although he only had one legitimate son with his wife, Maria of Portugal, he had numerous other children by another woman, Leonor de Guzman, who was one of the, who came from a very noble Castilian family. And one of the things that he had done during his lifetime, which maybe wasn't that great for Pedro, was he had really kind of showered his sons by, by Leonor with all these honors and privileges and positions. Uh, the most famous of which, uh, the most important for our conversation today, would be Enrique II, or mm -hmm. the Enrique de Trastamara, who eventually becomes Enrique II. So Enrique de Trastamara becomes the Count of Trastamara. And from the time that Pedro takes the throne, I mean, Pedro's about 15 or 16 when his father dies, you have pretty much continual conflict. Leonor is still one of the most powerful women in Castile, so that's one central power within, within the kingdom itself. And her children are also all in these positions of incredible influence. And so they're kind of, you have these different groups working against each other. So one of the things that Pedro does, because Leonor is a member of the old nobility, because a lot of her support comes from this group, is he starts to turn to kind of non-traditional sources of influence. He's very closely allied with the kingdom of Granada for a Castilian king. He also begins to turn to urban centers and kind of these more, I mean, not, not really middle class, but kind of more... Not, not traditional members of the nobility as kind of sources of source of income, sources of being able to kind of project power within within the kingdom. And this, of course, enrages a lot of the members of, of the nobility who kind of rally more and more around Leonora and her children. So that's kind of looking at some of these, these internal factors that, that we see. And the other kind of issue that we see here that kind of really sets the stage for this conflict um, and this is going on throughout the 1350s and the early stages of the 1360, are a couple kind of inter or international disputes that Pedro gets himself involved with. Mm -hmm. uh, the first of these would be where he actually goes to war with Aragon, um, beginning in the mid-1350s. And this is what's called the War of Two Pedros, right? The War of Two Peters in English, um, where he's fighting against the forces of Pedro IV of Aragon. So once his relationship with uh, Enrique II, who's his half-brother, um, really kind of declines and really becomes problematic, Enrique goes and starts fighting for, for Pedro against his own half-brother, Pedro I. 
So the other kind of international conflict we see that kind of really influences what we're seeing here in Castile is looking at the Hundred Years' War as well. So traditionally at this time, Castile is a strong ally of France. And Pedro actually marries a member of the French royal family, um, Blanca de Bourbon, um, in the, in the mid-1350s. Unfortunately, he doesn't really want to be married to her, whether because he's in love with his mistress, Maria de Padilla, or because other, other sources say that the French never actually paid her dowry like they had promised to do. But for either one of these reasons, we see him actually abandon Blanca three days after they get married. Um, Blanca becomes another kind of source of conflict within the kingdom. She actually encourages the, the, nobili- the nobles to revolt against Pedro in the 1350s. And Pedro's very briefly imprisoned by these kind of pro-Blanca nobles. So he manages to escape, he puts Blanca in prison again, and eventually Blanca dies. Most contemporary sources say that Pedro kills her, or has her killed, has her poisoned. And this obviously kind of creates... Yeah, it kind of has repercussions for this relationship that Castile has with France. So what we see after that is we see Castile turning more and more towards England, and we see Castile establish this alliance with England, which in turn kind of causes France to be very concerned about the shift in power and this larger conflict that they have at the time. Mm -hmm. And so this leads to them kind of offering additional support to Enrique. And in fact, when Enrique invades in 1366, so he invades Castile in 1366, Okay. And he does this primarily with, with French troops. So he has what's called the White Companies, um, or a, mercenary, a French mercenary troop, which actually included English soldiers as well at, at the time that, that Enrique invades. So he invades with Aragonese support from Aragon with French troops, and he's actually able to force Pedro out of Castile in 1366. Unfortunately for him, Pedro goes straight to England, goes straight to Edward III, who's still alive at this time, and Edward agrees to support uh, Pedro getting his throne back. And so we see Pedro come back to Castile in 1367, and he's actually fighting with the Black Prince, um, Edward of Woodstock, the oldest son of Edward III, and also with John of Gaunt, right? So you have a lot of kind of these major English military figures who are leading this invasion into Castile. And they're doing this with the, the thought that they're gonna get paid at the end of this, which doesn't really kind of work out that way, way for them, but we, kind of, we can see at this moment, the way that this conflict, while kind of has these roots in what's going on in Castile, while it has these roots in kind of the political situation in Castile, as well as the personal relationship between these figures, right? I mean, Pedro is responsible for the death of Enrique's twin brother, Federique. And also, Pedro's mother had actually ordered the execution of Enrique's mother, um, Leonor de Guzman, who I, who I mentioned a little while ago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we can see this kind of as a political event, but there's also a lot of kind of very kind of personal elements to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. That gives us a really good sense of both the personal um, dynastic conflicts involved and the larger international context in regards to to the Hundred Years' War. I was wondering if you could also tell us a little bit about if there are any structural causes that uh, fed into this conflict, particularly in regards to the theme of the 14th century crisis that you hear so much about in the, in the history of this period? Well, I mean, the, I mean, I think it's kind of impossible to imagine this war without the 14th century, without kind of everything that's going on in the 14th century. Um, I mentioned in passing earlier that Alfonso dies from the Black Plague. I mean, this is something that hits in the mid-14th century, has incredible repercussions throughout Europe. Castile's no different, mm-hmm. right? 
So, I mean, looking at kind of the instability caused by the death of Alfonso, as well as just kind of this tension that we see between the nobility, the traditional nobility, that's kind of being challenged by a lot of kind of social and economic changes that are taking place. And Pedro is really not making things easier, right? I mean, he's definitely kind of trying to centralize power. He's definitely trying to take advantage of the situation to really kind of elevate his own position within Castile and really trying to kind of centralize a lot of political power with himself. And also, I mean, one of the things that we see from, I mean, from Enrique's propaganda and from other sources as well is that we see Pedro turning towards groups like, you know, the Muslim King Granada for support, also kind of his Muslim subjects as well, and also turning to kind of the Jewish community within the kingdom as well. I mean, Castilian kings traditionally have a closer relationship with the Jewish community. I mean, we see them kind of offering their support, their protection. But with Pedro, we see that even kind of to a greater extent as well. Mm-hmm. And we see in particular kind of very close relationships between him and his treasurer and kind of raising just really extraordinary sums of money for the time as well um, for some of these conflicts. Okay, so now that we have a good idea of the of the context and of how this conflict gets started, could you just give us very briefly kind of a narrative of uh, of how it progressed over these few years? <laughs> yeah, that would that'd probably be helpful. Um, so yeah, so Enrique invades in 1366, like I mentioned, with the support of kind of these French mercenary forces as well as the Crown of Aragon, and he's able to establish himself in, in Castile. So he's mm-hmm. able to push Pedro out of Castile. So Pedro comes back in the following year in 1367 with English support, and we see the two forces meet in really kind of the, the one major battle, or the, the most important, maybe not the most important, but the, the most prominent kind of battle that we see between Pedro and Enrique, and that's the Battle of Nahara, which takes place in 1367. And one, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this conflict is just you have all different types of forces here, right? I mean, you have French, you have English, you have Castilian fighting on both sides, you have forces from Granada, you have forces from Aragon. It's really kind of, it's a major conflict, and it's actually one of the Black Prince's major victories as well. I mean, this is one of the battles that kind of establishes his reputation. Um, he probably has a smaller army, although it's probably better trained, um, better equipped, and we see him... Victorious, unfortunately for Pedro, Enrique escapes. And Enrique escapes first to Aragon and then back to France. And so what happens is Pedro is able to kind of reestablish his rule. Unfortunately for him, um, he promised basically the world to the English for their help. And he promised way more than he could actually give them. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is you start to see a real kind of breakdown in the relationship between Pedro and his English allies because the Black Prince is demanding sums of money that, that Pedro just can't, can't give. And so it actually gets so bad that at one point, uh, the Black Prince is actually thinking of dividing up Castile and just kind of breaking into chunks, giving the English a chunk, giving the Aragonese a chunk, giving the Portuguese a chunk, and just kind of 
just basically doing away with it, right? So, I mean, that's one thing that he thinks of. Another thing he thinks of is basically setting Pedro aside and setting up kind of a regency of some of the major Castilian nobles who would govern the, the kingdom for him. But before he can do this, he leaves. He goes back to, to Gascony. He goes back to his court in Bordeaux. And in the meanwhile, while he's planning this, while he's thinking about this, Enrique comes back. And Enrique comes back once again with, with French support. By now, Pedro IV of Aragon has changed his mind and doesn't want to help Enrique anymore, but doesn't really matter. Enrique gets back to Castile, and this time Pedro's alone, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is Pedro goes south, tries to kind of rally troops, try to rally support, goes to the Sultan of Granada, trying to get allies, trying to get support, um, but ultimately his forces are defeated by Enrique outside of a place called Montiel um, in the south. And then what happens is he's besieged, he tries to escape, he's captured, and most accounts state actually that Enrique kills him personally, kills him with his own hands. And that really, and so this takes place in 1369, and that's, that's the end, right? This right. is the end, at least of kind of him involved in this conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, this is when Enrique's power kind of becomes firmly established, or more firmly established, I should say. Right, so so we see Enrique taking uh, power and the definitive end of, of Pedro. So can you just tell us a little bit about what the implications are of Enrique's victory in terms of both Castilian society and, and politics, the way the kingdom is run? Sure. So I mean, I, I think kind of one of the one of the first kind of results that we see is the weakening of the monarchy. So Alfonso XI was a very effective monarch, and Pedro took a lot of steps to really centralize power with himself as well. And so we see kind of a strengthening of the Castilian monarchy throughout the early portions of the 14th century. Mm -hmm. I mean, once Alfonso is able to kind of take power from his tutors, take kind of power from this older generation of figures, people like Don Juan Manuel, for instance, we see that kind of he's able to establish himself very effectively. And we see Pedro trying to do similar things, although maybe a little bit less effectively, more haphazardly, right? Mm -hmm. What happens with Enrique is he has the same type of problem that Pedro had, right? So he needed French help, so he's promised them a ton. He needed the help of Castilian nobles to come to his side, so he's promised them a ton. He's promised basically everyone around more than he could possibly have, right? So you see him offering or issuing a lot of grants early in his reign and kind of offering titles and property and money to everyone who supported him. Or at least, you know, many of the main kind of figures who have supported him, right. which weakens his position, right? The other thing that we see is even though Enrique has taken power, it's, not, it's something that's not universally accepted. And so we actually see a treaty that takes place in the early 1370s between all the other Iberian powers. So you're talking Portugal, Navarre, Aragon, Granada, and they've all aligned against Enrique. Mm -hmm. So basically they see him as an illegitimate ruler, and they basically want, I mean, what they really want is to take chunks out of Castile, right? They want to kind of take properties that they've wanted for generations. Um, Enrique, although he's given away a lot, is still a much more effective military ruler, and he's able to kind of push them back and hold them back, right? And so during his own lifetime, it's not actually that big of a problem for him because he has the authority, he has the position, he's well respected, you know, the nobles basically stay in line. Um, he's actually able to invade Portugal at one point, he burns sections of Lisbon, I mean he's very, he's a very effective military ruler. Where this becomes a problem, however, is in the reign of his son, Juan I, and with future rulers because he's, a lot of the nobles that he's given these grants to still have this property. And without Enrique himself, who is able to kind of enforce authority over the nobles, or kind of able to, able to act as, kind of effect as effectively 
we see Juan having a lot more problems. And the other issue that we see here is Pedro had children. I mean, Pedro had two daughters in particular who are kind of important for the story. So what happens actually, first of all, after Pedro's death is Fernando I of Portugal claims the throne of Castile for himself. And the, you know, Aragon supports him, Granada supports him. Enrique defeats him, however, and kind of forces him to, to renounce his claims. So what happens after this is Pedro's daughters, so Pedro, even though he was never married to Maria de Padilla, claimed, or at least we think that he wasn't actually married to her, claims to have married her in secret, and so he claims that his children by her were legitimate. And these children, when he, he takes them with him when he goes to England in 1366. So when he's pushed out of Castile, he goes to England, at least it says in the Chronicles England is probably to Bordeaux, to the court of uh, the Black Prince. And his children have to stay there when he goes back. So they're kind of hostages, they're kind of, they're being held there, right? But what this means is after he dies, his children are still in, under English control, more or less, right? And being kind of the savvy politician that he is, we see John of Gaunt marry his oldest daughter, who would be his heir, right? So he marries Constanza, and shortly thereafter, he claims the throne of Castile for himself. And so now you have this major English prince, this major foreign prince, who's claiming the throne. And he actually has Portuguese support. I mean, so it's kind of, it's a major kind of problem there. You have some Castilian nobles, people like Fernando de Castro, who, although, I mean, he dies in the 1370s, it's still kind of, you have these major kind of foci, these major kind of places where people are still not accepting Enrique's rule. Right. And so, I mean, this is kind of leading up to kind of additional conflict, additional additional chaos, right? So, I mean, there'd be a couple of English invasions, one that goes through Portugal, and then the more serious one in the 1380s, where John of Gaunt comes back personally, and he actually invades in Galicia. He lands on La Coruña. He has Portuguese support at this point, because after a different kind of horror that Juan had fought against the Portuguese, we actually try to claim the throne of Portugal for himself through his wife, Beatrice, mm-hmm. who is the, the daughter of Fernando I. Sorry, I know it's a lot of, a lot of names and familiar Sorry. relationships. Um, but through his relationship, he claims the throne of Portugal, and he's actually defeated. And so you get kind of this state of conflict between Portugal and Castile during the reign of Juan, and then we see John of Gaunt using this conflict to kind of come in and kind of claim the throne of Castile, or I mean, kind of try to enforce his claims to the throne. Mm-hmm. And we get an alliance between Portugal and England at this time, and that alliance would actually continue for centuries into the future. That's kind of a very significant relationship. Right. So it sounds like what we have here in terms of Enrique is a real legitimacy problem, uh, not only because he is an illegitimate son who takes power, but also there there are all these other foreign powers that that are making their own claims um, to the throne in some ways. So how is it that Enrique seeks to um, justify his, his seizure of power and claim to status as king? Well, I mean, I think what he does is he does this in, in various ways. I mean, some of the interesting sources that we have from these from this period are works of propaganda that Enrique had commissioned or had made. We see this in some of the contemporary romances that we that have kind of come down to us today, where it's kind of trying to present Pedro in a really negative light, right? Mm-hmm. We also see in some of the contemporary sources in Forsar, for instance we see actually mention of how effective Enrique's propaganda is and how effectively Enrique is able to present Pedro not only as a cruel ruler or not, and not only as a bad king, but he actually spreads the story, for instance, of him being an illegitimate son of this Jewish physician at court, right? So he says that Pedro's not 
the son of Alfonso XI, but he's actually the son of this Jewish physician. And so this is kind of a way of delegitimizing him retroactively as well. One of the main kind of areas where we see this, however, um, I, I believe at least, is we see this in some of the histories that are produced at Enrique's court. Um, in particular, the one produced by Pedro Lopez Ayala, who is writing towards the end of Enrique's reign, but he's writing a, an account of the reign of Pedro I mm-hmm. and also Enrique II. And I think what we see here is we actually see Ayala presenting Pedro as a, a type of anti-model of what kingship is, right? Mm-hmm. And we see kind of a way of legitimizing Enrique through kind of delegitimizing Pedro. And this is kind of one of the ways that Enrique, or that, that Ayala, or one of the ways that Enrique is really trying to kind of support his rule, not only through kind of propaganda, not only through kind of oral romances, but also kind of shaping the kind of official historical record in such a way that kind of presents him as the legitimate rightful king and not as some kind of illegitimate interloper. So how about some of the other players that uh, were in this conflict? Did they have their own responses to Enrique's propaganda, a a counter-narrative against what he was and his representatives were saying? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think even within Castile, I mean, at the time that you see Enrique producing these romances, or romances being produced on on Enrique's behalf, you see similar romances being produced for Pedro. Um, I mean, this is obviously something we don't have as many of, because they tended not not to survive in as many numbers as those for Enrique. But we do have examples of romances that are showing the figure of Blanca, for instance, the positive relationship between Blanca and Federique, right? Two of the most prominent victims of Pedro's cruelty, according to someone like Ayala. And in this romance, for instance, it has them having a romantic relationship in which they have a child, right? So, I mean, in kind of one stroke, it explains why Pedro would act against Blanca and why Pedro would act against Federique as well. So we also, I mean, that's just kind of one example. We also, when it comes to Pedro's children, we know that chronicles were written on their behalf. So we know that we have kind of pro-Pedro chronicles in the same way that we have this kind of pro-Trastamara, pro-Enrique chronicle that's being produced, but that, that was produced by Ayala. So, I mean, we have kind of the flip side of this, right? It's just kind of being produced elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So with the chronicle, for instance, one possibility is that it's being produced at the court of John of Gaunt, right? So John of Gaunt has this kind of court at the Savoy in London, which is kind of considered this, this Spanish, this Castilian court in exile, right? So it has Constanza, who's kind of ruling over it, who's at least in England being referred to as the Queen of Castile. And we have all these Castilian nobility who's kind of in exile, who supported Pedro, who are now kind of at this court in London. So this is kind of one place where they're producing not only kind of romances, probably, but also looking at these types of actual kind of historical chronicles, right? Trying to kind of control the narrative of what happened and control the narrative of this figure of Pedro. And I mean, this is something that kind of quickly becomes central as well, right? This idea that the image of Pedro is so important. In, I mean, I've, I've mentioned Forsara, for instance. I mean, this is something where Pedro is not kind of the cruel, immoral king that we see in Ayala, but someone far more kind of neutral. We also see Pedro showing up in sources like Geoffrey Chaucer, for instance, in The Monk's Tale. We see Pedro as kind of, as, as far from being kind of removed from a cruel king, he's this noble, just king who's kind of un, unjustly deposed, right? Mm-hmm. We see similar kind of accounts also coming from people like Ch- the Chandos Herald, who was a follower of John Chandos, who was part of the invasion in 1367. And then on kind of the flip side, we see kind of accounts being written in 
on behalf of uh, Enrique's French allies that kind of show Pedro even worse than Ayala does, right? He's this completely deranged, kind of demonic figure. And also, can that really often play up this idea of Pedro as this illegitimate um, figure as well, right? The illegitimate mm-hmm. son of Alfonso XI. And they also kind of often mention the fact that he was excommunicated by the Pope as well, which is something that Ayala's own account doesn't even get into. These are just a few of kind of many of the kind of contemporary accounts, and I think it really just speaks to this idea that the image of Pedro becomes something, much like kind of the actual Pedro himself when he was alive, becomes something to be fought over. It becomes something that if you can control this image, you can control the narrative. And if you control the narrative, you control the figure who's supposed to, who has legitimacy, who has the right to rule. And this is something that has real world consequences. So um, when we're seeing really the use of history or the telling of history in this kind of propagandistic way, is this new in any way in this kind of 14th century context? Or are you seeing a, a broader change in the way that um, this kind of propaganda, if, if you want to call it that, is, is being used to justify kingship? Well, I mean, I, I think that this kind of, this, el- this political element of history is something that has been around since history first first was written. I mean, I right. think these are these are things that go together very well, right? I mean, this idea of kind of connecting one's reign or kind of an individual king's reign with this authorizing past or kind of this, you know, very kind of authoritative noble history is something that we see we see a lot of. Mm-hmm. I think within kind of the Iberian context, where we see kind of differences, it's just the fact that legitimacy is such a problem for for Enrique, right? He is an illegitimate son. He had no kind of rightful claim to the throne. I mean, someone like Fernando I of Portugal, for instance, who's the legitimate grandson of Sancho IV, has a much better claim to the throne, right? If we if we look at this kind of, if we look at this in the light of the legal documents of the time, Fernando has a much better claim. Pedro has a much. I mean, Pedro is the king, right? right? There's no, there's no reason that Enrique. There's no legal right that Enrique has here. So, I mean, I think what Ayala is faced with is a really kind of unique problem. And I think one of the ways that he goes about approaching this problem, and namely kind of delegitimizing Pedro as opposed to mm-hmm. kind of presenting a more positive argument for Enrique, is something that's new within Castilian historiography. I mean, that's something we don't see a lot of. I think what else he does as well is kind of bring in a lot of these, I mean, rhetorically, he's just, act, he's just a very kind of sophisticated author. And I think he's going back to a lot of classical sources and a lot of classical models, and he's shaping his argument in such a way that he's really effectively presenting this image of Pedro as this immoral and thus kind of illegitimate ruler, and Enrique as kind of being the one kind of, not only kind of elected by the people, not only kind of the right choice, but also kind of placed there by God to rule. So I mean, I think kind of this this connection between history and politics is not new, but I think kind of the way Ayala himself shapes this this argument. I mean, I think the way that he, in my opinion, kind of is this really kind of great encapsulation of what Enrique is trying to do, right? Kind of showing Pedro to be illegitimate and him having this divine right which supersedes the fact that he's illegitimate. I think this is something that's kind of new and innovative and I think is caused by this problem of illegitimacy and this need to do something about it. Right. So if if we're seeing uh, somebody like Ayala introducing these kind of new ways to legitimize, even if perhaps through de-legitimacy, then is, is that something that we see effects of later on in uh, Castilian or uh, Spanish politics and society? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think kind of what we see, 
I mean, this is something I'm really kind of interested in professionally, but I think what we see in these histories is they become incredibly rhetorically sophisticated, I think in ways that we don't see in England, for instance. I mean, I think mm -hmm. these chronicles are doing a lot more work. And I think it's also, I mean, this is one of the things that really leads to, kind of leads to kind of literary development in general, because these chronicles, particularly in the 15th century, are really kind of sophisticated literary documents that are making very kind of complex and innovative rhetorical arguments as well. Great. Well, that's been a fascinating uh, conversation, Breton, and I think to be able to link this conflict in the 14th century to these broader elements in kind of the development of history and, and this history of ideas is a really important work that you're doing, so I want to thank you for coming on the program. It's my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.